Hey, Church of the Beloved. <clears throat> Thank you for joining us today. If this is your first time, I'm Pastor Abe. If this is not your first time, I uh, just want to say I'm really happy to be back behind the pulpit uh, to preach. I, I do admit, though, that having pastors James and David uh, take the reins for the past few weeks has been kind of nice. I won't deny that. But as I began to prepare for today uh, and the message, I started to get excited um, about being able to spend some time showing you what God showed me in the passage we're focusing on today. But before we get into that, uh, I want to mention and remind folks, today is the first Sunday of the month, and so this is the opportunity for us to celebrate and remember uh, communion together virtually. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab your communion elements, uh, if you have them, bread and a cup, so that we can together at the end of today's message, remember the redemptive act of our Savior together. So before we dive deep into this, uh, I'm going to ask that you join me. Take a moment now to dedicate this time, this message to God, that it be for his glory and for his beloved, for your edification. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know, you called us to worship you, to give you all the glory, and so we do. We do it virtually, but we do. And now may the words of my mouth be a conduit of your truth alone, God. Speak through me, Holy Spirit. And I lift this prayer up to you in the name of your Son. Amen. So we've spent the last month and will be spending the next few months um, focused on this sermon letter. The sermon letter written to Hebrew or Jewish converts to Christianity. And this is back in the first century uh, after Jesus had been born, had been crucified, and then raised from the dead. Today's passage that was read, uh, what I saw is that you, gotta, you see that a pastor's got to do what a pastor's got to do. Because in chapter 7, this author starts to exposit or, or unpack, interpret two Old Testament passages in, in their, and to show their gospel significance. The first is from Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 20, and the second is from Psalm chapter 110. And this author, I'm going to call this person the pastor. The pastor is showing the reader how from these Old Testament passages, the passages from the Torah, the ancient Jewish sacred text, how God had always been pointing to the means by which we might draw near to him, to God. I want to show you that by starting with uh, Genesis Chapter 14, verse 17 to 20. And there it reads this. After his return from the de defeat of Tidolermer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shabet, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He, he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, it's, it's not a very long passage I just read. There's not a whole lot there. If you read chapter 14 in its entirety, you'll see the story really is more about, you know, the king of Sodom, uh, Abraham's nephew Lot, uh, Abraham's faithfulness. And, but there's this little, little tangent, a little nugget of information. And this tangent, referring to Melchizedek, it points to something very significant that is quite easy to miss or potentially dismiss. 
And this pastor focuses on this tangent to point out the gospel significance of these verses in Genesis. And the pastor uses Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and, and through chapter 7, verse 8 to explain that significance. And I'm going to read from verse 19 of chapter 6. It says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's that name, Melchizedek again. This name that had a really tiny appearance in the story of Abram. By the way, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, so I'm going to use that name instead, instead, and the pastor uses Abraham, the full name as well. So, so here's this priest, Melchizedek, a priest of the God Most High, one who comes before Moses, one who comes before the priestly line of Levi. This priest whose job it is to connect us to God, and it would appear, as written by this pastor, that this priest established a separate priestly line. And we're going to continue on in chapter 7, verse 1, to see what else the pastor has to say about this priestly line. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace or shalom. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. I'm going to take a beat for a second here because there's a lot that the pastor is unpacking in these verses. I'll be honest, I don't want to spend too much time on this because ultimately this is just laying some groundwork, some context for the point of today's message. But I do want to start the conversation, uh, a conversation that I hope you, that you'll have in your small groups, your Bible studies, your community groups. Uh, and BTW, if you, if you don't belong to one already, please email me, abe at cotb.life, email info at cotb.life, and we'd love to get you connected to a group that way. But as I said, I just want to start that conversation um, here. You see, the pastor is pointing out something pretty significant here. It's pointing to a royal priest, something that can't exist according to Mosaic law. You see, the king comes from the line of Judah. The priest comes from the line of Levi. Genealogy is a big deal at this time when it comes to identifying who's going to be the king and who's going to be the priest for the Hebrews. And that's why if you look at scriptures, there's all these scriptures about who's begetting who, who's begetting whom, and that's all over scripture. But the absence of a hereditary line for Melchizedek, this is significant. It's pretty important. See, the pastor's writing that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy. It's not a statement of immaculate conception. It's not spontaneous generation that's being pointed to. It is, it is a statement that highlights that there's no link at all to the Levitical lineage of priests for Melchizedek. Melchizedek is like Jesus. He's, he's not Jesus, but he's like Jesus, a foreshadowing of a high priest that is able to claim his role as priest by divine appointment, not genetic inheritance, with a, with a sacred oath from God, like Peter read in verse 21. 
I want to continue on in verse 4 of chapter 7. It says this, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. So the pastor here is now explaining the gospel significance of this tangent of why Melchizedek comes up. See, if Abraham, the progenitor, the, the starting point of the entire nation of Israel, if, if, if Abraham understood that the priestly role and the significance of Melchizedek at the, at the time, to the point of giving tithe, something that had not yet been established, which makes it even more significant that he gave that, then obviously this priestly line is going to be superior to the priestly line of Levi that was established later. And if the inferior is blessed by the superior, then Melchizedek and his priestly lineage would be superior to the children of Abraham, which includes the priests of Levi. So here the the pastor is explaining to the Hebrews, hey, listen, Levitical priests, they're important. They, They represented us to God. They allowed us to temporarily draw near to God on a regular basis. But there's someone better someone greater than your Levitical priests. It is the priest king who comes from Melchizedek's priestly order. Now, once the pastor establishes this baseline, this understanding, we move on to the next Old Testament reference. And this is from Psalm chapter 110. I'm just going to read to you verses 1 to 4. And where it says there, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And, and there, there's that name again, Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is the only other place in the Old Testament where this name is mentioned, where this name pops up again. And, and the writer of Psalm 110, who was King David, King David is divinely inspired to make a reference to this other priestly line. Now, we've got to keep this in mind. First, two things. The first is that the line of Levi the priests of Aaron, they've been established now. They've been going on for, for, for generations. And so, so mentioning this other priestly line, Melchizedek, that's significant. The other thing to consider is that this particular psalm is referenced by Jesus and the other apostles over and over again as pointing to who the Messiah would be. So what we have here, as this pastor points out, is that David has been divinely inspired to write that the Messiah, the Lord, would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
And the pastor breaks it down even further in chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. And I'm going to read that to you here. It says this, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now I want to pause again for a moment. I realize that there are some who might be thinking, uh, Pastor Abe, you're getting kind of technical, or, or maybe you're thinking, you're getting kind of boring. And I'm sorry, I have to say, I am a little sorry about that. Not much, but I understand that I might need not be the most inspirational of preachers. I, I, I will not move hordes to storm the capital, of which I'm kind of glad, and I don't want that kind of oratory skill. I'm much more of the mindset that my role as a pastor is to inform you, is to inform you of the beauty and the miracle of the gospel in this book, of the amazing truth that the Bible holds, a truth that lays out a path of redemption from the Old Testament to the New Testament to today. And my goal and my hope is that by providing you a little glimpse into the perfect presentation planned by God in this scripture, you might be drawn near to God by the amazing work of Christ in your life, by the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So you can be reminded, we are the beloved children of God because of Christ alone. If you're not familiar with this, we exist as a church to see the gospel transform people into spirit-filled disciples who, who know we are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. Now, having said that, I do want to summarize quickly the pastor's point here in their interpretation of Psalm 110 through this sermon letter. See, the pastor is wanting to point out uh, that in Psalm 110, David prophesied, David predicted, pointed out that the Messiah would come from a priestly line, but a different one, from the order of Melchizedek. And that this needed to happen because perfect redemption would never be attained by the existing priestly structure. The priests who became priests by, by bodily descent, by generic heritage, the priests who were descendants of Levi, of Aaron, they would never be able to provide perfect redemption. And that, like Melchizedek, the priest that would be able to provide perfect redemption in the sight of God would be both a priest and a king. And that this perfect priest was always going to be better. This, this priest would be better than Abraham, better than Moses, better than the angels, better than the high priest that existed at the time. This priest would be a king and a priest. 
together. Something that the priests of the Hebrews would never be able to be and that this royal priest is Jesus. And with the establishment of that reality, it comes with the next logical step, which is in verse 12. Verse 12 reads this, For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now, we don't want to uh, misunderstand what the pastor is saying here. Jesus said himself in Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 17, Do, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. You see, the completion of that law meant the establishment of a new one. The analogy I would like to present to use this, I just finished uh, conducting and uh, performing a number of annual reviews for my staff uh, during my day job. And for those of you who are unaware, I'm what is uh, known as a uh, bivocational or co-vocational pastor, which is just a, a fancy word that basically means that I have a full-time job in the private sector that allows me to serve in my full-time role in this gospel sector as the pastor here at Beloved. Now, as part of my regular annual review with my uh, team, what I do is I go through the objectives that had been identified in the past year, see if they've achieved it. If they have, great. Mark it as completed. And then the next step is, all right, what's the new objective for the new year? In the same way, Jesus came, and what he did is he marked the original law, those original objectives completed, and as a result established a new law. See, the original law, don't, don't misunderstand, the original law that Jesus marked completed, it's not just the, the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, that hopefully we're familiar with. And just to quiz you, the first one is there's only one God. Don't replace that one God with an idol. Third one is uh, remember God's name. It's too beautiful to take in vain and, and waste. The fourth one is keep this day holy. Number five, honor your parents. That's a hard one I know for a lot of people. Uh, six, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And the last one, don't covet. Because where your heart is matters. But the law is not just that. It includes so much more. It includes things like what are the rules around sacrifice? What do the priests wear? What do they do? What does the temple need to look like? When do we present different types of offerings? There's a sin offering, a peace offering, a thank offering, a wave offering. The law includes all of this. And the new priest from the line of Melchizedek, this change in priesthood means a change in the law. It is now the establishment of the law of Christ, to love God, and to love people. <laughs> this is the backdrop. This is the context of today's passage. And today's message, and I will say this, don't worry. Today's message is actually very, very simple. It's simply this. Jesus has come as our new high priest to draw us near to God. I want to reread verse 18 and 19. It says there, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now there's an old saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The pastor's pointing out here that the old priestly model is broke. 
It has to be set aside because of its weakness, because of its uselessness. Because the old law, it never had the ability to provide perfect peace. It wasn't going to save because it had to be done first for the priest and then by the priest every day forever starting over and over again with a different set of priests every time a human priest died. But, but in Jesus, we now have a better hope. We, we have a means by which the intended work of the priest to draw us near to God could be achieved. Verse 24 and 25 says, but he holds his priesthood permanently, speaking of Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, Jesus, who is eternal, intercedes and advocates for us forever, perfectly. Take a second and think about this. Consider, consider something that you've advocated for or someone you've advocated for in the past. I'll tell you, for me and my wife, Suzette, it's the vulnerable children in Zambia. For children in this little village that many at Church of the Beloved support, it's called Susu. These children have, have lost parents due to the AIDS pandemic. They're on their own. Maybe they're caring for their siblings, so as a child-headed household. Or maybe they're living with elderly grandparents who are not really able to care for them. These vulnerable kids, they need advocates within their community to, to love them, and they need advocates outside their community to remind them of the love that God has for them. You see, my role as an advocate outside their community is also not just to remind these children, but to remind us as Christians that we are called to show that same love, to practice real religion by, by caring for the widows and orphans. See, advocacy in my case and in this case, as described in Hebrews, it's not begging for mercy. It's not asking God, hold back your wrathful hand. See, advocacy in this intercessory, in this perfect sense as described is Jesus, the Son of God who is fully God and who is fully man, who is part of this perfect community of the Trinity. It is Jesus reminding God, God the Father, hey, you love them. You love Grace and John and Linda and Isaac and Daniel and Diana. and jo You love them so much. You sent me to die for them. And it's our Father in heaven who is simultaneously, uniquely one and at the same time three, responds to his son saying, I know, I know. See, in Jesus, we have the perfect intercessor we have the perfect advocate who is able to provide a better hope to draw us near to God and to remind God of his love for us. I wanna, I'm going to start wrapping up, uh, but one last thing. See, Jesus is a, is a better high priest, is the better high priest. Jesus came to be the better advocate for you and me to our Father in heaven, and, and now we're able to draw near to our God. But the thing is this, to draw near assumes that we're not near already. So the question might be, what is the chasm that is separating us from God? What, what are we trying to do to overcome that chasm? Some might say, Pastor Otua kind of mentioned it last week, you know, I don't know enough. 
knowledge is my chasm. And so the answer might be spending more time uh, reading or listening to podcasts. Uh, while others might think, well, I just haven't felt or experienced enough of God's love. And so the chasm is to, to spend time commune in nature. That's great. Lay in the snow, make snow angels, and find God that way if you want to. Uh, you might be thinking, you know what? I just haven't felt peace. That's my chasm. And so you try to be nicer to people. I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team. You can start making your way back up because what I want to do is I want to close our time by reading to you from verses 26 to 28 because this is where, where the pastor identifies what that chasm is and what it, we must do to overcome it. And reading again from verse 26, it says, for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. You see, the chasm is our sin. So we desperately need a high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, exalted above the heavens, because we're not. These are the, the things that are, are causing a chasm between us and God. The, and the imperfect original answer to overcoming this chasm of sin was to have a high priest appointed in their weakness who had to sacrifice for themselves first before even trying to make a redemptive sacrifice for me. And the perfect answer given now that we have today to overcome this chasm of sin is Christ, is Jesus. Because in Jesus, we have a better and a perfect advocate forever. In Jesus, we now have a path to draw near to God, the Father. Overcoming the chasm of my sin, of our sin, the real chasm that exists between God and us. And it's only through the redemptive act of our Savior. So we want to take a moment now to remember this beautiful, beautiful act. See, in this time between the resurrection and Christ's return, Jesus left some instructions. How to continue this holy ritual that reminds Christians of God's grace. Reminds us that by trusting Jesus, we can draw near to the Father in heaven. Reminds us that we are the beloved of God because of Christ alone. It's an act for all those who call Jesus their Savior. To remember his sacrifice, to celebrate his resurrection, and to anticipate his glorious return. So at this point, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab your communion elements, the bread and the cup, because together we're going to participate in this holy act of remembrance. But before we do, let me say this. If up to this point, this better hope has not been uh, a part of your reality in your life, if this chasm continues to separate you, to stop you from, from drawing near to God, it doesn't have to. You see, the promise of a better high priest to advocate for you to our Father in heaven is something that you can cling to as well if you just ask. You see, Scripture tells us Jesus is knocking. And all we need to do is open the door and say, come in. If that's you, 
if you are opening the door of your heart to Christ, and you're, if you want him to come into your house, if you, if you want him to come into your life, for Jesus to be your better advocate, that is awesome. I'm going to ask you, email me. Uh, I want to talk to you more about that. And if that's you today, please join us in this act of remembrance as well. Because you see the bread broken, it represents Christ's body broken so that ours would not have to be. And the cup poured out represents Christ's blood poured out on the cross so that ours would not have to be. See, Jesus set you and me free from the bondage of sin by dying in our place. And we remember his ultimate sacrifice by continuing to practice this sacred act until he returns.